Well, hello, my name is uh, Tim. I uh, have the pleasure of being able to serve as one of the pastors here on staff at uh, Christ Community. And I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. And as we, we turn to this passage, Hebrews 4, which you might have noticed is about rest. That word appeared quite a few times. Um, why don't I pray for us as we start this morning? God, I'm thankful that we get to preach um, Jesus and not ourselves. And that, God, I'm up here to proclaim that there is a, a rest available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray you just help me to be faithful, to point to him, the one who can give us rest for our weary souls. Scott, I love you, and I pray all these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, rest. Never has something that should be so easy been so hard. Now, why is rest so hard for us? Why is rest so elusive? And for me, the question or the answer to that question is pretty simple. I have um, a son who turns two years old today, and another son who is just a little over three weeks old at my house. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but kids tend not to be conducive to rest. And that's why, if you've been around here a while, you might wonder why we preach the Bible. You know why um, we go to the Bible each week. And, and this is a reason. This morning's a reason why I mean, the Bible is really important to go to. Because if you just came up to me. And asked me, you know, Tim, why don't you just give us your thoughts on rest? You know, you with a two-year-old and uh, a three-week-old at home, what's rest mean to you? It would have been a very short sermon, about three sentences long. It would have gone something like this. There is no hope. You will never have rest until you die. The end. But thankfully... We have the Bible, which says a little bit more than that. Um, And so even for someone like myself, who rest does seem very elusive, the Bible speaks to that, and it's important. And when my first son Isaiah was born, the morning that that Misty went into labor, about 8 a.m., she actually woke up with vertigo. And she'd never had vertigo before. It was a totally new new thing. And she was nauseous. She was dizzy. she She was not feeling well at all. Couldn't stand up. So we take her off to the hospital. <clears throat> we, we have the doctor check her out, and the doctor thinks that what's going on is vertigo. Not totally sure, runs tests. And the doctor's really encouraging and kind and, and talks about, oh, I feel so bad for you. And kind of as we're leaving the office, the doctor quips, well, at least you're not in labor. And a few hours, Misty was in labor with vertigo. And so she went with, it was a, a pretty long labor. And, and about 3 a.m., finally, um, you know, a good tw- uh, 19 hours after Misty woke up with vertigo, Isaiah's born. Misty's still nauseous. The room's still spinning. She can't get up. She just had a baby. And now here we are holding this infant in our, our, our arms. Well, we ran on adrenaline for a few hours, um, doing okay. We h- hung in there. But about later that night, 9 or 10 o'clock maybe, Isaiah was just screaming and would not go to sleep. And, and I was sitting there, I was holding him in my arm, and he's screaming. We've been up for 36 hours, I'm exhausted. Misty literally has, you know, she's, she's exhausted and tired and sick. I'm trying to hold this child and get him to go to sleep. And a thought came to my mind that comes to every parent of a young child as I'm holding Isaiah. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> because without rest... Without rest, holding a child in your arms, a screaming child in your arms, is a hopeless experience. And yet with rest, it's an experience of great joy because you know 
you're one of the two people in this world that can calm that baby down and let him know he's safe. The rest is that important. And that's why we need it. That's why rest is so significant and why we feel that we don't have it. So the question is, how do you get that kind of rest? Right? And that's not just a physical rest. I mean, sure, I hadn't slept in a while, but that's more than physical rest. How do we get a deeper rest, a rest that enables us to go through a restless world with hope? Well, thankfully, we're not the first society that's asked that question. That, that as we turn to this book, Hebrews, which was originally a sermon written to Christians living in the first century, and it was written to Christians who were beginning to drift away from God. They were beginning to wonder if their trust in God was well-placed, if they shouldn't look for their trust somewhere else. And it shouldn't surprise us that one of the first places the author goes is rest. And I think the reason, or one of the reasons why they're drifting, one of the reasons why God doesn't look so trustworthy is because they're not resting. Now rest is, is that important. And as we turn to this passage today, as we turn to where this author will take us, this author has three things to tell us about rest. Now why we need it, how we avoid it, or why we avoid it, and how we get it. So why we need rest why we avoid rest, and how we get rest. Now let's start with why we need rest. And my guess is many of you think, you don't have to convince me that I need it. I already know I need it. Let's move on to point two and save ourselves 10 minutes, get some extra rest, right? <laughs> the, the problem is, the problem is you don't know why you need rest. I mean, I thought I knew why I need rest until I opened this passage. And this author goes somewhere we don't go. Because we tend to say we're, we don't have rest because we're too busy or we need balance in our lives or we need to order our schedules better. And all those things may certainly be true, but we don't just need a day off. We don't just need rest because we need physical rest. We need more. And so why does this author author say we need rest? He starts by pointing out that without rest, without rest, we are slaves. At three times in this passage, he quotes from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was originally written about the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation was the nation of Israel who, le- who lived in Egypt under a cruel, oppressive Pharaoh. And they were the victims of grave injustice, of slavery, of oppression and racism, and genocide even. And what God did was he, he came and he freed Israel from Egypt through the ten plagues, right? If you've seen the Ten Commandments, the movie, or, or the Prince of Egypt movie, right, that's what happened. God comes in ten plagues and he frees Israel from slavery, from their slavish work. And he sends them out into the wilderness. And when they're out in the wilderness, God gives the Ten Commandments, right? That's the context of the Ten Commandments. It's you know, not just God coming out of nowhere saying, hey, do these ten things. It's, that's the context. And I have no doubt what their favorite command what of, uh, which of the Ten Commandments was their favorite? There's no question in my mind. Remember, th- th- this is, I think, their favorite. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servants your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. A Pharaoh had worked those Israelites from sundown to, from sunup to sundown seven days a week. They did not know a day off. And God takes them out of Egypt, and one of his commands is, you do not work six days because you're not slaves. You're my people, 
And my people are not slaves. Human beings were not designed to be slaves, driven into the ground, working seven days a week. And so, only slaves work seven days a week. Only slaves are forced into crippling busyness. Only slaves say, I'm too busy. And my guess is many of us in here again, if, if you asked, if I asked, why don't you have rest? Because you'd say you're too busy. There's too much going on. There's just too much on your plate. You can't find rest from those things. And what this author says is, no, people who know God's rest are not slaves. They do not work seven days a week. They have rest. And so the question for us is, well, how, how are we slaves? How are we driven into this overwork? I think we're slaves to success. Right? So we put in more hours than other people, so we make sure no one passes us by. And we're slaves to a materialistic culture, so we make sure that we work long enough or hard enough to make enough money to give up the impression or to live the image that we want other people to see. That we're slaves to expectations for our kids, so we overschedule them and overburden them, hoping that they'll, they'll get into the right athletic event or get the right grades to get into the right college. Or we're slaves to the expectations of our parents, and we work harder and harder, hoping we'll live up to their word and their expectations, but that work doesn't end. Or some of us, right, we're slaves trying to do good things. We see people who need our help, or we see worthy causes, and we just keep giving ourselves away and giving ourselves away, and the result is we're too busy, we're overworked, and we're worn out. And we make, in our culture, heroes of workaholics. We read their biographies, and even though their families were destroyed and their kids are estranged, we still idolize them. And we brag about the fact that we don't take days off of work. We're slaves. And all that raises a question, right? Why are we slaves? Why are we driven in this way? Why are we people who are driven to work seven days a week, to not take a Sabbath, to not rest? Well, I think the answer is without rest, we're slaves, but also without rest, we're driven by insecurity. And now that I've called you all insecure, um, why don't I go ahead and start with myself first and how this insecurity has worked its way out in, in my life. But a few years ago, I gave up um, my job as a full-time um, pastor and went into seminary. And so I was a student, and that, that meant that I had to take a job, but I had to take a job that wasn't going to be um, what, my, what a pastor job was. I had to find something that would fit my school schedule. And I needed good health insurance, and, uh, and, I needed, and I really liked coffee, and I needed to drink lots of it to get through school. And so I thought Starbucks seemed like a good idea, and so that's where I, I ended up going to find my job. But honestly, that was a major, a major step down in social status. That as a pastor, for the most part, everyone liked me. That on Sunday mornings, people wanted to talk to me. I would kind of be the center of attention in some ways. Which, of course, raises a whole other sermon about why pastoring is really dangerous, but, but we'll leave that sermon for another time. But for the most part, that job gave me meaning, gave me status, gave me value. And now I'm at Starbucks, making next to nothing, dealing with ridiculous customers, with no social status. And here's the real, the real irony. Right? I, I actually loved doing that. I loved making drinks. I loved dealing with customers, even the difficult ones, because... There's just like free comedy some days. And I actually really loved my job. And yet there was a part of me that didn't want to tell people what I did because it was not highly valued. It's not a high social status position. And that insecurity is why I overwork. 
Why even as a pastor, I want to make a name for myself. I want to gain status. I want to gain people's respect. And I think if I do that, then I am something. The trouble is that work never stops. Because there's always another promotion. There's always more money to be made. There's always another person to impress. There's always another job to take. There's always a grade that could be a little better. There's always a way to play your sport a little more successfully. That work does not stop. And so we drive ourselves into the ground working for a goal that doesn't end. The second way we're insecure is, is as parents. That is, as a parent, I'm, I'm insecure because I want to use my kid in some ways to prove myself. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was on Facebook, and a couple of my friends from Chicago posted a video of their two-year-old singing the song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And he was actually really good at it. Um, and of course, I have a son who turns two years old today, and my son is not close to be able to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, not even close. And, and when I watched that video, it just struck me with fear. Is my son getting behind? Am I failing him? Is he learning? Is there something wrong with him? And I was driven by this just fear and insecurity of, oh my God, I've got to get him into to second two-year-old preschool, right? I mean, I, we need to start teaching him something. I mean, he's got to start learning, right? He should be able to sing. And I, to my own shame, I tried to teach him Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And <laughs> he looked at me like, Dad, that's, that song is lame. I'm not going to sing it. Stop it. Right? And that, that's, but yet we're driven by this, this insecurity of trying to push our kids to show that we are something or that they are something. Interestingly, a, a few years ago in The New Yorker, a, a writer named Judith Sholovich pointed out just how we do this. She talks about how we're, we're terrified of our kids getting into the right school, so we'll line up at 5 a.m. to make sure they get into the right preschool. That we flash baby Einstein cards to, to three-month-olds to make sure they don't lose any development. <clears throat> and she offers these chilling words to us in our culture. In a society that measures status, now in achievement and grades brand name colleges, awards, the scramble for advantage is bound to propel us into over-parenting. Over-parenting, however, is closely linked to overwork. It's harder to opt out than you think. For now, we use our children to jockey for our individual status. That line, it's harder to opt out than you think, hits me. I know it's ridiculous to do that with my son, and yet I can't stop. Because I'm driven by this slavish insecurity that I have to prove myself to others. And so our desire for status, achievement, gets worked out into our kids. And the the trouble is that that work doesn't ever stop. Because you could always give more love to your kids, right? I mean, you could always spend more time with them. You could always read them another book, teach them another lesson. And that work does not stop. And it will drive you into slavish insecurity if you don't find a way to have rest in the midst of that. And the last place that, that we can be insecure then is, is that and some of us overwork because we think people need us to. Right? I mean, and parents are especially guilty of this, right? If, if I don't spend every waking hour with my child, they won't make it. Right? Or, or some of us, right, we have, we have good causes we give our lives to, and they keep eating into our rest and eating into our, our, our opportunities to, to withdraw. That there are good reasons always to engage nonstop. But to do that is to be Driven by something other than what Christians or what this author is saying that we should be driven by. See, that's why he goes. He starts by talking about Psalm 95 and this physical land of rest. But then he moves to Genesis 2 in Hebrews 4 verse 4 where he says, 
For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. So here's the question, why does God rest? Right? I mean, I know why I rest. Right? If, I, if I don't get rest, I'm a terrible human being. I mean, it's just, it's just I'm a bad person. Right? I mean, I have to eat, I have to get rest, or it just goes downhill. Right? Some of you are like that. But God doesn't need that. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get worn out. He doesn't get hungry. So why does God rest? Well, you have to understand the context there. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating. And every time God creates something, he steps back from it and he says, it is good. And then finally, after six days of creation, he creates all of the world. He creates human beings, animals, plant life, all of creation. And he steps back on the seventh day and he rests and says, that is very good. Because the rest of God is a rest to be able to step back and enjoy what you've made. To find satisfaction in what you've done. To, as a parent, step back. And even though you could give more to your kids, it's possible to say, that is good. To step back from your work. Even though you know you could say, you could have done more, maybe had a better idea, you wish you would have thought of something, to step back and say, that is good. That's the rest we need. That's the rest that we long for. And we need it because we are people who are slaves, driven by insecurity to overwork. And because God has no insecurity, and because God is most certainly not a slave and not interested in having slaves, God has that rest. And we need it. The trouble is we are really good at avoiding it. So why? Why do we avoid God's rest? Well, again, we have to go back to the the wilderness generation that the wilderness generation, right, that they are freed from, from Egypt and the slavery and, and, and ten plagues, amazing things happen. They're sent out into the wilderness, into the desert. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the desert, but it's not a lovely place. Right? I mean, it's really hot, but there's no shade to make you cool. You get really thirsty, but there's no water to drink. You get really hungry, but plants and animals are smart enough not to live in the desert, so there's nothing to eat there. I mean, it's not a good place to be. And so it's not surprising when a few chapters, a few years, or a few weeks after they're into the wilderness, God's people start to complain. Man, it's really hot out here. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm tired. And as this is happening, God takes them to the edge of this land called Canaan. And God says, listen, I've made a perfect land for you. It's a land called Canaan. It will be a land of rest for you. He uses that word. This will be a land of rest for you. There's just one problem. There's really wicked, evil people that live there, and your task is to go and drive them out. And the people of God, Israel, who had seen everything God had done in the past, through the desert, how he had sustained them and walked through them, look at the Canaanites in the land, these evil, wicked people, and say, God, we cannot drive them out. We're too tired, we're hungry, we're thirsty. We cannot drive them out. What they were really saying in that moment was, God, you cannot drive them out. We can't trust you. I mean, maybe we'll get in there, and we'll lose, and we'll die. That we avoid rest like the wilderness generation avoid rest. Now, there's a question at the center of all of our hearts. Can you really trust God? Do you really trust him? Even when he says, go somewhere that you think you can't go, or you're living in a circumstance where you think you can't find rest, do you, do you trust God that he can actually give you rest. Now, I, I'm going to say something that a pastor probably shouldn't ever say. And that is, there are 
good and or understandable reasons not to trust God. And I know, again, pastors shouldn't say that, but I did, and I, I, I believe it, actually. There are understandable and, in some cases, good reasons not to trust God. Because some of us don't have rest because we are dealing with really hard circumstances in life. Whether it's sickness, unemployment, whether your job is, is just a hard place to go. Maybe your kids are being especially rebellious. I mean, we make problems that prevent us from rest, but there are plenty of problems that give us unrest. And God can be hard to, to trust in, in those moments. And so can we, can we trust God? Especially when you think about the culture we live in. I mean, we live in a competitive society where it seems like if you don't overwork, if you do take a, a day off, someone's going to pass you by and you can be replaced easily. That we live in a society where our, our jobs have 24-7 access to us through cell phones or emails and we have bosses and overseers that make those demands of us or we have kids that make those demands of us. That we live in a competitive environment where if our kids seem to get one B or one grade just slightly lower, or a point slightly lower on their ACT, they'll lose a chance at a scholarship or entrance into the college that we hope they get into. That we live in an environment where it is difficult to find rest. And yet if you, if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this. That a life at rest is a life of trust. A life at rest doesn't mean your circumstances finally worked out and everything came together. No, no, no. A life at rest is a life of trust. A life of trusting God to walk you through whatever He's going to walk you through, to whatever He has for you, to trust Him. That in that, you will find rest. Even if it's something that you don't think can give you rest. And so, that comes to the third point. How we get rest. At this point, some of you, right, you heard the first three points. You're like, I only care about how I get rest. So you've checked out. It's time to check back in because I'm going to try and help you, right? Some practical steps. How do we get rest? And yet, that's a really hard thing, right? How do you practically get rest? Because I could say one thing to one of you, and it would make no sense. It wouldn't be helpful. And another to another, and it, it might help. I mean, how do, we, how do we find, how do we grasp rest? And I think the author points us in three directions. To trust the word, to strive to enter, and to remember the better Joshua. What's that? Well, trust the word. Now, I don't know if you felt like I felt earlier when, I, when we got to verses 12 and 13, but they seem like they're out of place. The 12, verses 12 and 13 actually were two of my favorite verses in the Bible until this week. And they, again, they, they always kind of freaked me out, but this week they really freaked me out. Um, and, and, and we have this passage, right, of rest and peace and God entering, uh, God causing us to enter his rest. And then we get... That God's word is a sword that's sharp and will cut through flesh down to joints and marrow. What does that have to do with rest? It's worth reading. Hear these words. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Doesn't sound very restful, does it? What does that, what does that have to do with rest? And there's something important. Right, the, the, remember, I, I said a life at rest is a life of trust. A life that trusts God. And earlier again, I said something pastors shouldn't say, which is that <clears throat> there are good reasons not to trust God. I, and I, I really, I genuinely mean that. 
And yet, I would also say that if there is even one good reason to trust God that can send all of those reasons packing, you have to trust Him. You have to. And that's why the Israelite generation failed so badly. Because they were slaves, oppressed, ran into the ground. And God freed them. And then he sent them into the desert. And he gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock. And he promised them he would be near to them. And he would walk with them. And he would be with them as they went into the promised land. That they could trust him. And he'd proven himself. But they didn't trust And friends, how much more of a reason do we have to trust God? For God didn't give us freedom from a Pharaoh, bread in a desert, or water from a rock. God gave to us his own son. His own son. The Hebrews 1 says, is the heir of God. is the image of the invisible God. That this son whom God appointed, the heir of all things, the one through whom God created the world, that this son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That that son made purification for my sins and your sins. And now he sits at the right hand of the father interceding for us. God gave us that. And so whatever the circumstances are in life that may make you think God cannot give you rest, you need to trust your own self. You need to drive after your identity through your work, through your parenting, or through whatever it is. We have to trust the Word. And the Word doesn't just mean the Bible, right? It's important not to just think about the Word of God here as the Bible, that this Word is, is God's message to us, and God's message to us is His Son, whom He so freely gave to us. And so the Word of God then, it it cuts through our excuses. It cuts through our reasons to not trust God and asks you, why? Why could you not trust God? That if you're a Christian, why are you so restlessly busy? Why are you trying to find your identity, your value, your status, your achievement in something other than what God has done for you in His Son, Jesus? Can you do anything better than that? And this, this word, it cuts through all those reasons, right? It cuts right to our hearts and it shows at our hearts, at our core, we are indifferent and self-trusting when we have every reason to trust God. And if you're a Christian, right, at some point in your life, you've gone through that experience where God just stripped you down and said, all right, you've tried it your way. We've had enough of that. It's time for my way and you can trust me. And even if I lead you into the desert, I'll lead you out. And even if you don't think that you can trust me, you know because of my son you can but if you're not a Christian, this is another, another word. These, these two verses really pose a question. And really, honestly, they pose a question to us that are Christians too. Because it's, I think it's easy for us to, to think of Christianity essentially as be nice. Be a decent person. Right? Don't be mean to other people. That's what Christianity says. And we have those. Christianity is a really good sense of moral. But, but that is not what Christianity is saying. The word of God does not say be nice. And that's why it cuts through to your heart. That, that's not what, what makes the word of God so threatening. What makes it so threatening is because it exposes what's really in us. And and if if it's true, okay, that God sent his son to die for us, and we ignore that, and we're indifferent to that, there is not a hard-heartedness that's worse. And I I understand, you you may say, but but there's so many religions, right? I mean, there's so many different ways to look at the, the world. I remember actually being in college 
and thinking, I, you know, why am I a Christian? Maybe I should look at every, every other major world religion. And that lasted for, for a couple hours. Um, and I, I tried to read the Koran, um, and it was really boring. I mean, really boring. I tried the Book of Mormon. It was even worse. And, and, and if you've ever read the Bible, you picked it up and you thought, I just don't know why people find this book so inspirational. It's okay, right? Some, reading other religious texts is just strange. And I, but I, I still have this guilty feeling, right, of, of why, why am I privileging Christianity? And there's a reason. I, I think a fair reason, actually. Because only Christianity says God sent his son and his son died for you. And I, whether, that, whether that's true or not, you have to listen to that. You have to, you have to make a decision on that point. Because it's not just be nice, make some good decisions, be generous to others. No, no, no. This is God loves you and gave his son for you. And if you're indifferent to that, if you reject that, that's not just rejecting morals. It's not just rejecting a, a way of life. It's rejecting the best source of rest and love and grace you'll ever, could ever know. And so trust the word. That that word is the one way to know rest. We can hate that message, right? I mean, this, this work of the word getting into our hearts, we can hate it, we can reject it, but just don't find it interesting because it's not. It's either the most incredible truth ever or it's not true and not worth your time. But if it is true, and I think it is, then that leads us to the next two points, the strive to enter. Now that's what the, the passage or the author says in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same seems sort of counterproductive, right? Strive to enter rest. I mean, rest seems like easy. Why would we have to strive to enter rest? And, and let's think about this command in a couple of ways. The first, think about it in, in terms of remembering the person of rest, and second, remember the practice of rest. And first, remember the, the person of rest. That, that again, I, I think many of us think we lack rest because we want better circumstances. We want, we want a better job. We want a better situation. And don't get me wrong, circumstances help rest. Right? I mean, even though I have two kids at home, I have a good job, I have a good family, no one's sick in my, my household. So, so even though I have two kids, I, it's pretty easy for me to have rest. Circumstances definitely hurt rest, but they'll never give you rest. Because rest is first and foremost a person. It's God himself. And one of the reasons why the wilderness generation failed so badly is because it wasn't just God had done all these things for them and with them. He promised to be near them. He promised to be in their midst, to dwell in their midst. And God makes that same promise to us. So you could take a day off. You could find rest, and it won't give you the true deeper rest because rest is a person. And that's why you can know rest even when you're tired, even when you're worn out, stretched thin, when you're sick, when life isn't going the way you want, you can know rest because rest is a person who gave himself and loves you. He gave himself for you and loves you. Second, remember the practice of rest. <clears throat> and this is the only piece of practical advice that I'm going to give you about how to give rest. And the worst part is no one's going to listen to it. You're all going to ignore it. And so I don't even know if I should share it, but I will anyway, even though no one's going to listen to me. And that is the, the practical piece, take a Sabbath. Do not work six days a week, or seven days a week. Do work six days a week. <laughs> Do take a day off. Practice the Sabbath. Now, I'm realistic, right? This looks different, right? If your main vocational path is, is you're a stay-at-home mom, right, you can't, like, lock your kids in a room for a full day. I'm not suggesting that. 
right? But, but a day off does mean you rest from the work. And that's not just stopping to work. That's doing what God did. It's stepping back, looking at your kids, looking at your work, and saying, that is good. God, thank you for, for bringing that into my life. It's, it's fellowshipping with God, whether it's prayer, reading your Bible, worship, silence. It doesn't matter what it is. Just take a moment and step back into the presence of God and practice rest. And it's going to be hard, right? Because we don't, we're not good at stopping. I mean, we, have, we can check our email constantly. We have a phone. Anyone can get a hold of us at any time. We're bad at stopping. And yet this passage, if it says anything, listen, you have to stop. You have to strive to enter God's rest. Because when you practice the Sabbath, it's not just about a day off. It's the Sabbath is a declaration. Right? It's a declaration that we're free. Right? That we do not work seven days a week. Because our identity, our value, our sense of self-worth is not tied to our kids. It's not tied to our job, our work, or anything else. So we take a Sabbath because we're free. But more than that, we take a Sabbath because we know that, that in Christ we are secure. We're free from our insecurity. Right, that I don't get my value from what other people say about me or, or how my work can contribute. I get my value from one thought and one thought alone, and that is Jesus Christ, God's only Son, gave himself for me. And so I can step back from everything that I do and, and take a moment weekly, take a day weekly if possible, to rest in that. And again, I, I don't know what that looks like for you, right? For me and my family, a, a one-month-old, a three-year-old, or two-year-old, it looks different. And for you and where you're at and your family, it looks different. But find a way to honor the Sabbath and honor that rest where we step back and declare our freedom and our security in God's grace. And then finally, we have to remember the better Joshua. One of my favorite verses in this text is verse 8 and 9. And Joshua, if you remember, after the wilderness generation failed to trust God, God said, okay, you're not going into the promised land, but your children will go into the promised land. They will taste my rest. And so they did, and Joshua led them into that rest. But what the, the passage in Hebrews is saying to us is don't just think about that rest. There's a better rest. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Forever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his work as God did from his. That there is a Sabbath rest invitation to every one of you this morning. A Sabbath rest that God is inviting every person in this room to. And a Sabbath rest, right, it's not just, don't just think of it as going to church or, or taking a day off. A Sabbath rest is, is a joyous celebration in the presence of God. Knowing he's our sustainer, he's our provider, that, that, that we still live in the seventh day of creation. That, that's what the author is saying here throughout this passage, right? God makes the world in six days. Um, whether it's literal or figurative, I'm not making a point there, but we still live in that seventh day with the God of rest over all of us. So we don't have to know slavery. We don't have to know insecurity. We can know the God of rest who sustains this universe, and we can live in trust of him. Because a life at rest is a life of trust. And that all raises a question for us, then, if, if we aren't trusting God, if, if we are restless, if we have not yet entered into this rest, what do we need? What are we going after? Now let me ask, let's, let's say you get every promotion that you're ever up for in your entire career. Is that better than the Son of God dying for you? 
Let's say you go into work tomorrow and your boss says, you are our best employee and we're going to double your salary. Is that better than the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, God's radi- the radiance of God's glory? Is that better than him giving himself for you on a cross? Let's say your kids do everything you hope they do. Perfect grades, get into the college they want, get the career path they want. They advance all the way that you, they do everything you hope they do in, in their life. Is that better than Jesus? Or let's say you do everything your parents ever hope you do. You make the team, you get perfect grades, the report card is finally what they expect it to be. Is that better than Jesus Christ who went restless to a cross? that we might live in his rest forever. Now, what do you need that you're working towards, that you can't lay down? Because whatever it is, I, I promise you this, it's not better than what Jesus has already done for you and won for you freely. And I think, that, I think Jesus knew this is, this is where we are. This is the human condition. We drive ourselves into overwork. We drive ourselves into slavery. And that's why when he came, his fundamental invitation was one of rest. He didn't come and say, listen, you guys need to figure this thing out and you need to start doing this and doing that and doing that. And he had, listen, he had moral teachings, but his invitation was, was fundamentally one of rest because he knows we're worn out. He knows we're tired. He knows we've cut ourselves off from the God alone who could give us rest. And so he comes humbly to this earth and he offers an invitation that I leave us with this morning. His words... Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy, and my yoke is light.